Psalm 77, as we near the end of our spring practice on naming your stage of apprenticeship. If you were not here last week, please go back and listen as this week is a part two. It's a follow-up to the last time we are in a kind of ongoing chat around this concept of the dark night of the soul or the seasons in the spiritual journey where we don't feel God's presence like we used to. On that note, recommended reading on the subject is The Dark Night of the Soul by Dr. Gerald May, who's a psychiatrist and a spiritual director from the East Coast. It is by far my favorite. You're welcome to go back and read, as my 13-year-old would say, The OG, which is The Dark Night of the Soul by St. John of the Cross and Interior Castle by St. Teresa. They're both fantastic. The hitch is you're reading an English translation of a 16th century Spanish book written with pre-enlightenment academic view of the scholastic model of the soul, so it's very technical. Have fun with that. Um, my recommendation is that you start with May, and he, his work is basically a summary of St. John and Teresa's work and some history, and then if you want to go further, take the next step after that. That's just my advice to you. Um, that said, Psalm 7. 77 to begin our time. For the director of music, for Jeduthun of Asaph, a psalm. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, but I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated, and my spirit asked, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Have you ever cried out to God in a time of distress but felt nothing in return? Verse one. Have you ever felt like in that time of distress, God was nowhere to be found in your life or at least in your heart, that you felt like you were just alone in the middle of the night? Verse 2, have you ever been through a season where when God came to your mind, you groaned? Verse 3, as another translation has it, I remembered God and was troubled. Not I remembered God and I felt comfort or joy or faith or hope for the future. I remembered God and I just felt doubt, anger, confusion. Where are you in my life? Have you ever asked questions like verse 7, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Are the best days of my life behind me? Is God no longer in my life? Verse eight, has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? All the promises of God passed, done over a sham. Verse nine, has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Is God angry at me? Is he not the God of compassion? I thought he was. 
Have you ever had to think, verse 10, about seasons in the past in your own life, or not even in your own life, in the life of the church tradition or Israel or history, where God was faithful to others in order just to live off of that in the present, because right now you just don't see evidence of God in your life? Have you ever felt, verse 16 to 19, like you were just in a war, like you were in a, some kind of a war zone? Notice the imagery of war, a storm, and the dark of night all mixed together. Have you ever felt, that's my life? It's a war, it's a storm, it's the dark of night. I feel emotional duress, and I don't see God in it. Your footprints were not seen. The path of God in front of me was invisible to my mind or imagination. And have you ever had to, verse 20, just put your trust in the fact of God as your shepherd out in front of you, even though you see zero evidence of God work? in your life. Welcome to church, everybody. We're so happy you're here. If you resonate with that felt experience at all, you are not the first person to feel this way. This poem is upwards of three millennia old, and in it, the poet is naming the felt experience of seasons in our spiritual journey where it feels like We're all alone in the dark of night. The writers of the Bible, not just here, all over, are open and honest about such seasons. They do not sweep it under the rug like a dirty little secret, but put it out in the open to wrestle with it and God as a community. Last week, we read Psalm 42, where the metaphor was of a desert. Here, in Psalm 77, the metaphor is of a dark night. And these are just two of many metaphors in the library of Scripture for such seasons in the spiritual journey. Another is a cloud. We read this literally in the Torah where God's presence on top of Mount Sinai is likened to a cloud. There's that beautiful line, Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. But we also read this in the poetry. I think of Nahum 1, quote, the clouds are the dust of his feet. Have you ever been in a season with God where it just felt like you were in a cloud, like just in a fugue, everything was unclear, no sense of direction, no clarity of what God was on about in your life? Another is pruning. This is the metaphor used by Jesus in John 15, quote, every branch in me that bears fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. I remember when I was 13 and we moved up uh, from the Bay Area as a family to Portland, and we got this new house and we had rose bushes for the first time. California never had rose bushes before. And so we had rose bushes and I thought they were beautiful and actually my mom bought each one of us kids, it's kind of cheesy, but each one of us our own rose bush and we got to pick out the color. So I had mine and it was in the front yard. And then I remember our first February, first off, I just remember our first February and I don't want to talk about it. but. Um, <laughs> I remember our first February, the, the rose bush was beautiful. And you know, it was semi-new, I don't know, a foot tall, a foot and a half tall. And my mom says, all right, kids, come on out. And we go out, and she hands me a pair of clippers, and she said, all right, it's time to prune it. And I thought prune it, like, okay, maybe trim off a bad leaf or something. But no, she taught me you have to actually go right down to an inch or two off the ground and cut the, the just kill it right there. And I remember thinking, my mom, like, what, where is the mother of compassion and love? <laughs> Who is the evil gardener mom right now, right? And I remember we cut it down, and it was beautiful, literally to two inches off the ground, and it just sat there for weeks, dead to my naked eye. All the color, all of the life, all of the growth gone. And then you know the story. I just remember all of a sudden, when spring came, it began to grow. And it was really fast. And by that summer, it was even bigger and healthier and more full of life than it was before. After a season of pruning. Have you ever felt like you're in February and you're the rose bush and God is the gardener? If so, Jesus said that as much would happen to you as you wait for spring. By the way, that's another metaphor. Fifth is winter. I think of Song of Songs too. See, the winter is past. The rains are over and gone. There are winter seasons where everything just feels barren and quiet and empty and cold before God. 
Another common metaphor in Scripture is waiting. I think of Psalm 130, quote, I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. That's a mixed metaphor of waiting and the dark of night. It's the imagery of a watchman or a soldier on the walls of the city of Jerusalem during the night watch, 2, 3, 4 a.m. in the morning with no Apple Watch, right? No idea when will the dawn come? How many more hours? How many more minutes until the light? No clue, just there alone in the dark waiting. Have you ever felt that way in just a waiting season with God? Or one more is hiding. Isaiah 45, quote, I will wait for the Lord, there it is again, who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. In another spot in Isaiah 5, I think Isaiah 8, he writes, you are a God who hides his face. These are just a few of the metaphors in Scripture for the seasons where our experience of God feels more like absence than presence, where we just don't feel the emotional sense of God's nearness the way we used to. Now, this phenomena has come to be called the dark night of the soul. Last week, we defined the dark night as a season in our apprenticeship to Jesus where he intentionally takes away not his presence, but the felt sense of his presence, not the same thing, in order to do a deep work of purgation and preparation in our soul for a greater level of freedom, love, and intimacy. The language of the dark night of the soul is not from the New Testament or the Old, but it goes back to St. John and St. Teresa in the 16th century. If you know anything about church history, without a doubt, two of the master teachers of the way of Jesus and experts in the growth of the soul. All I really want to do with you today is explore their teaching around the dark night and fit it into our spring practice. Now, to kick in, just a little bit of history, because I was a homeschooler and basically still am. So just a little bit for you. St. Teresa was born in 1515, during the last year of King Ferdinand's reign, right in the middle of the Spanish Inquisition. So not a great time to grow up in church. She was born into a wealthy family, but gave up all of her privilege to join a monastery and devote her entire life to prayer. Now, as she hits her 20s, she's just torn up by the corruption of the 16th century Catholic Church, so most likely type 8 on the Enneagram that she was, mover and shaker for sure, she founded the monastery of St. Joseph in Avalia as a center of reform in the Catholic Church as a whole, and in particular in her Catholic order, the Carmelite Order, which at the time was a few hundred years old. John is younger. He was born in 1542 into poverty, not wealth, but his bright mind from a young age set him apart. Long story short, he ended up at a university, and then right after that, graduated with honors, ended up as a professor at a prestigious college in Spain. But he too, by his 20s, is just wrecked by the corruption of the Catholic Church. This is around the same time as Martin Luther in Germany and the Protestant Reformation. Both St. Teresa and St. John are reformers at heart who just stayed inside the Catholic Church. The two meet when John is 25 and she is 52 and instantaneously have a deep connection, not a romantic one, but a spiritual one. For the rest of his life, he calls her his spiritual mother. He resigns from his teaching post to apprentice under her for a year and then to start a monastery for Carmelite men to kind of mirror her own for women. The two are a dynamite combination. Her spiritual authority, decades of experience in prayer, her experience of dryness and darkness, and then John's like vivid, scholastic, linear academic mind. The two together are fire. Now, sadly, as you can imagine, they face a massive backlash from the church. John is actually put in prison in the basement of a monastery Side note, you know you have lost the Jesus plot line when you have a prison in the basement of your church. Like, you know <laughs> something has gone horribly wrong in the way of Jesus. Um, but true story, he's put into prison, into solitary confinement. He's not allowed to bathe. He's not allowed to change his clothing. He's taken out once a day and beat by the monks. And in that prison... He has, you think your Bridgetown community is a pain in the neck. <laughs> um, 
in that, in solitary confinement, he has an encounter with the Spirit of God, a vision from God that comes to him as poetry. He's later called one of the greatest, if not the greatest, Spanish poet of all time. And this poem becomes, later on, he escapes, go read his story on your own time, but he escapes from the monastery, goes on to do all sorts of amazing things over the years to come. And with that poem as a basis, he writes his book, The Dark Night of the Soul, which is his book, but a lot of it is based on ideas that come from his spiritual director, from St. Teresa. What the two of them share in common, though they're very different personality types, was a burning passion for the felt experience of God and a sense that as the farther you progress down the spiritual journey, it's counterintuitive. It's almost the exact opposite of what you would expect early on. Instead of just feeling more and more of an emotional high from Jesus, we often actually enter into long, at times, seasons of dryness or darkness or whatever you want to call it, where we don't feel, we feel less emotion, not more, but that actually that's not regression but progression. God is doing some of his best work in the growth of our soul in such seasons. Now, I give you that history because, to my knowledge, nobody over the last two millennia of church tradition has really done a better job of naming not only the felt experience of the dark night or whatever you want to call it, but what God is doing in and through the dark night in our soul as St. John and Teresa. What I did not have time to explain last week is that St. John and Teresa's teaching on the dark night was a part of their much larger body of work on stage theory. In fact, he and Teresa were working inside the ancient stage theory paradigm that goes all the way back to the second century called the Three Ways, which we covered in week one of this practice and series. Remember that? Purgation, illumination, and union. Now, this is about to get very technical, but it's not very long, so just give me 10 minutes of your attention and then we'll come back up for air, I promise. They actually taught, what they meant by the dark night of soul, they actually taught that there are two dark nights, what they call the dark night of the senses and the dark night of the spirit, and they were the liminal space in between each stage. So just give me 10 minutes of your mind and your attention, and let me do my best to summarize their teaching. Now, this is not Bible, this is just their paradigm, and then we'll come back up for air and connect the dots between your life and mine. Now, stage one, if you remember from a few months ago or a while back, is uh, what they called purgation, uh, which sounds far more ominous than it actually is. John called people at this stage the beginners. This is when we're just beginning to follow Jesus. And as as ominous as purgation sounds, this is actually a beautiful time in our journey with Jesus. This is when we feel, as a general rule, all sorts of emotions from and kickback from God's presence. And this is not true for all people. Some people are less feeling-based than others just by personality or Myers-Briggs type. They're a little bit more analytical. And other people who come from trauma, in particular sexual abuse, often from very early on in the spiritual journey really struggle to feel the Father's presence or love for reasons that you might expect and have to go through some kind of inner healing to get whole at a soul level in order to feel more of that. But as a general rule, most people, when they first come to Jesus, feel this kind of emotional high. John said, what God is doing in this stage is weaning us off of our love for the world, the flesh, and the devil, and causing us to fall in love with Jesus instead. So he, in grace, lets us have all of this emotional kickback from Jesus and we, because we enjoy Jesus more than we enjoy the world. So this is like the quintessential joke about the, I'm on the Jesus high or whatever, you know? You never hear people talk about the Jesus drug or the Jesus high who are 79, right? You hear it from people who are 23 or who are 15 or post-youth camp or whatever it is. And it's a legitimate thing. It's beautiful. It's God's grace to you. The downside is at this stage in our maturity, we still operate off of the pleasure principle in the language of psychology, meaning we do what we do, not because it's right or we love God or we love others or self, but because it makes us look and feel good. We think that we're following Jesus because we love him, but actually we're, <laughs> we love the feeling that we get from him. Teresa said, quote, we seek the consolations of God, not the God of consolations at this stage. 
Plus, there is a little bit of a spiritual arrogance at this stage, not for all, but for a lot of people. People often think they are far more mature than they really are. We're young, we're a little bit more idealistic, especially in a charismatic church like ours, because we forget that the manifestations of the Spirit, things like prophecy or healing, are not a sign of maturity, but a sign of God's grace at work in a community. Right, so you can stand up and heal the sick in the name of Jesus. That does not make you a Christ-like person. At best, it makes you somebody willing to risk for Jesus, which is no small thing. That's beautiful. But read the stories in the Old Testament and the New. All sorts of people prophesy, heal the sick, do miracles, and, and are not Christ-like people at all. Right? So the, all of the manifestations of the Spirit are a sign not of how, like, our, how mature we are. They're a sign of God's grace and his mercy at work in a community. Now, of course, it's easy to forget that, right? In particular, if God is at work through your prayer. We must mature beyond all of this. A life that is run by the pleasure principle, where we only do things that make us look and feel good, which, by the way, is pretty much the new normal in American society as a whole, the result of that is death. It's a generation-wide divorce. It's the breaking of commitments and promises. It's flakyism. It's a lack of character. It's corruption of theology and ethics. It's basically what is fast becoming the new normal. It will hold us back from a life of Christ-likeness. And pride, as we all know, is a killer. Those who think they have arrived never stop to ask for directions, right? And as long as you think, I got it all, I'm good, you will never even grow and mature to all that Christ has for you. So John and Teresa would say this, and again, this is, just, this is not chapter and verse, this is their paradigm. You're, feel free to wrestle with it. They would say, to move us past the pleasure principle and a little bit of spiritual pride, God takes us into the first dark night, what they call the dark night of the senses, so named because in it our senses dry up, in particular our thoughts and our feelings. Now, they dry up not just with God. We don't get the same emotional high from God's presence that we used to, but they would say with life in general, and that's one of the ways you know that you're in the dark night. We don't get the same pleasure from food or drink or a night out with friends or a beautiful late spring day that we used to. John writes this, the passive night of the senses involves God's own action upon the soul. This is God at work. As the person begins to strip away his inordinate sensual attraction to the things of this world, thus getting rid of the old self, especially through prayer, meditation, and self-denial. That's his description of stage one in the spiritual journey, which, by the way, that's a whole teaching right there. God then allows, okay, for stage two, a profound period of spiritual aridity to beset the believer the ultimate purpose of which is to effectuate an even more powerful purification of our inordinate or kind of off-base passions and desires, especially as these vices begin to manifest themselves on a spiritual level, as in a craving for spiritual delights and pleasures, meaning we operate off the pleasure principle and then we apply that to God. We're like, God, give me the kickback that I want. As the believer perseveres through this dark night, where no consolation of God is experienced, but not wanting to turn back to the futility of his old ways, a breakthrough ultimately occurs, whereby through sheer grace, this is just God's grace, the believer begins to experience the interior presence of God and makes the transition from meditative prayer to contemplative prayer. And there's a whole technical background to that we don't have time for. What they mean is basically to a deeper level of awareness of and connection to the Spirit of God. John's metaphor for the first dark night of the senses was of a mother weaning her child off breast milk. He used Psalm 130 as a biblical base. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child. I'm content. Think of the difference between a baby that is still breastfeeding and a weaned child who's two, three, four, depending on how hippie your mom is, five, six, whatever. <laughs> I just, that was kind of good. I just had to say that um, just for you at the seven. But think, what's the difference, right? When a baby 
who is still breastfeeding is hungry, what do they do? Yeah, they don't cry. They scream. Most of you have yet to have children. They scream. Doesn't matter if it's two in the afternoon or two in the morning. They scream bloody hell until you give them what they want. Now, once the child is two, three, four years old, I mean, at least my children, they come to me. They say, excuse me, father. May I please have some breakfast? I will calmly wait here at the table until you have time and it's convenient for you, right? No, it's, it's not exactly like that, but it is better. As a general rule, they don't just start to scream and yell and fall on the floor. They ask and they have the capacity to wait for food. Like a mother, and this I think is Teresa's influence on the metaphor, um, what John and Teresa would say is that Jesus wants to, or the Father wants to mature us to where we no longer live off of the milk of the pleasure principle, but off of solid food, meaning we run and operate based off of love. That is now our driving motivation where we can walk on our own two legs and grow up into maturity, where we walk no longer by feelings, but by faith. Now, if you're that one, two, ten-year-old child, whatever, who's still breastfeeding, and, and yet it is Portland, I'm just saying, if you're, if you're that child, let's, let's say, if you're an infant child, and the mother begins to wean you off of her breast milk, your experience, you don't speak her language yet. You don't have the capacity to fathom her ways yet. Your experience is just, I no longer have the level of intimacy and comfort and nearness to mother that I used to have, right? So it feels like cruelty to you when actually it's love. It's the most loving thing a mother can do to grow you in maturity. John would say it's something like that that God is up to in the soul. As we come through the dark night of the senses, we realize, oh my gosh, God has done a work in me. I'm no longer run off the pleasure principle in the way that I used to be. I no longer just do what makes me look and feel good. I actually have love. Not that it's all perfect, but love as a motivation. I walk by faith, not just by my feelings. And you emerge with a like a genuine, it's real, not a fake humility, a sense of, oh gosh, I have so far to go and I feel free because of that, and really a peace. No longer like a little baby, you know, like just yelling for mom when we need something, but as Psalm 130 said, calmed and quieted and content. At this point, John said we move into stage two, what the ancients called illumination, John called people at this stage proficient, meaning by now we are proficient at following Jesus. It's called illumination because it means we begin to take on the mental maps in our mind's eye of Jesus that correspond to reality. And so we begin to show up to reality, to our body, to our sexuality, to our relationships, to our work, to faith, to spirituality, in such a way that we flourish and thrive. And this is a great stage. It's where many of you are at right now. It's where most of us spend the bulk of our life. The problem is, the way that we connect and commune with God is still through our thoughts and our feelings. Our thoughts, we read the Bible and we think about it and we open our imagination, Lectio Divina, our study or whatever it is, and we, we pray and we open our mind to God and we practice listening prayer and we hear God's voice and we feel like we have a word from God or a sense of direction or our feelings. We have this sense of, I think God is at work in my heart. I feel this inclination that I think is from outside myself to do this or do that or not do this or not do that. Now you're thinking, what's wrong with that? Nothing's wrong with that. That's wonderful. But what John... And Teresa, along with basically the entire contemplative tradition up until today, would say, and again, I'm still trying to get my head around this, so just go easy on me, but I think what they would say is that there's nothing wrong with that. The trick is that God is not a thought or a feeling. God is a spirit. Thoughts and feelings are a gift from him, but they are not him. And there is a deeper level of intimacy that God has for you that is not just thoughts from God's and feelings from God, but is a spirit-to-spirit level of union or a will-to-will level of union. The problem is we don't know how to move beyond the human senses, in particular our thoughts and our feelings, to that deeper level. So what John and Teresa would say is that God then takes us into the second dark night, what they called the dark night of the spirit. 
Now this is not just more of the same. This is not just another season of dryness or darkness where we don't feel the same sense of God's presence that we used to. This is more like a crisis of faith. We feel little to nothing of God's presence. It's Jesus lying on the cross, my God, my God, why have you, what? forsaken me, with is itself a quote of Psalm 22. We have in this identification with the suffering of Christ on the cross, we have so little sense of the Father's presence that we feel forsaken by God, which feels very unlike the God that we've come into relationship, feels very unlike the love and compassion that we have come to experience as the new normal of the God we follow in Jesus. People often go into a deep depression. The depression's not the same as the dark night. often racked by doubt and prayer for many in this season, if you're in a true, what they would define as the dark night of the spirit, prayer is next to impossible. John writes this, for the spiritual and the sensual desires, sensual not meaning sexual, just meaning of the senses, are put to sleep and mortified, killed off, so that they can experience nothing, either divine or human. The affections of the soul are oppressed and constrained so that they can neither move nor find support in anything. The imagination is bound, can make no useful reflection. We just can't hear from God. The memory is gone. The understanding is in darkness. We have no idea what God's doing. Unable to understand anything, and hence the will likewise is arid and constrained, and all the faculties are void and useless. And in addition to all this, a thick and heavy cloud is upon the soul, what we would call a depression, keeping it in affliction, as it were, far away from God. This is not the time to speak with God, but the time to put one's mouth in the dust. That's a quote from Jeremiah. We must suffer through this purgation, this purging of our sin with patience and learn to be still. How many of you are thinking, I can't wait to grow and mature in Christ-likeness? <laughs> now, John's metaphor for this second dark night was not of the the baby and the weaning off the mother's breast, but was, and this is again a 16th century scientific kind of metaphor, but of what happens when you stare straight at the sun. By the way, don't do that. But before you go blind, what happens when you stare straight at the sun is your eye, and I don't understand the science of this, but your eye does not have the capacity to take in that much light, so you experience the light as what? Anybody ever stare straight at the sun? Yes, as darkness. Right? You experience that much light as darkness. He would say in the same way as the first dark night, God is actually more present with you, not less, but he's changing the way that he relates to you from thoughts and feelings to spirit-to-spirit union is what they would call it. But that is just too much for even us to grapple with. And God has to do a work of burning, the way, like sunlight burning in. Purgation is what they would call it, purging us of our attachments and our anxieties to set us free to a wider capacity to experience the presence of God in spirit-to-spirit union. Now, according to John, this second dark night is very rare. He writes, quote, the sensory, the first dark night, is common and happens to many. He would argue that most of you in the room, if you follow Jesus, will have some kind of an experience of the dark night of the senses where you just this, you don't feel that same sense of emotional high. These are the beginners, most people in that stage. The dark night of the spirit is the lot of very few, those who have been tried, who have been through some suffering, and are proficient, meaning are pretty far down the path with Jesus. If you're in the dark night of the Spirit, you are in company with the great St. John, St. Teresa, Martin Luther, Mother Teresa, C.S. Lewis. And if you're like, I don't want to be in the company of the greats. I want to feel God's presence and go to shalom, y'all, after this. Um, Realize this, in their paradigm, is the means to the end that you crave union with God. Martin Luther, who wanted to write a book on the dark night but never got around to it before his death, said, quote, do not be worried. It's just, if you hear nothing else tonight, just hear that. Indeed, such a trial is the very best sign of God's grace and love for a person. Wow, we, we do not, we experience it as cruelty. It's actually God's grace and love. He was quick to differentiate between depression and the dark night, and he had ongoing struggles with both, by the way. And he said, the latter requires, quote, letting God be God. You're not in control of your life with Jesus. Accepting the scandal of his hiddenness. That's a whole teaching right there. 
and trusting him in spite of reason, experience, and common sense. In Luther's dark night in 1527, when he felt most forsaken by God, ironically, he was also in prison as a monk for reform, same time, he wrote his most famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. If you've not come across that before, Google it before you go to bed tonight. It is a defiant anthem of trust in the dark of night. For John, for Luther, for Teresa, for the contemplative tradition, the darkness is then followed. It's not the end of the story. It's followed by the light of what they would call union. It does not last forever. The dark night is a means, not an end. It's not God's will for your life long term. God's will is to bring you, to grow you, to mature you, to pastor us into what the ancients called union. What they meant by that was the highest level of participation in the life and love of God that is possible this side of resurrection. In this final stage, and obviously I have not been there, I've just read the maps of those who have been and have left the maps behind, but apparently we finally realize that God has been with us all along that we're his beloved, we're his son, we're his daughter, he is our father, he is love incarnate, and that our felt sense of distance from God, the dark night or not, has always been an illusion, that we are, in the language of the New Testament, in Christ. The best way to understand the contemplative and mystic tradition is a lifelong spiritual journey for what is true of you theologically, You are in Christ. In the language of Colossians 3, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Layman's language, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus, all of that. For what is true of you theologically to become true of you experientially in prayer. So you say, I'm not just in Christ in a passage in the New Testament in a doctrine textbook. I'm in Christ in my day-to-day experience of life with God. That is the spiritual journey. Now, to repeat the disclaimers from early on in the series, and if you were here or if you can't remember, one, this is not anywhere close to as linear as I just made it sound, and, or as they make it sound. And they say that over and over again. They repeat that refrain. This is not that linear. They make it linear in order for us to make sense of a phenomenon that's just really hard to put language to. You know, Teresa would say, uh, one of her lines is, there is no one who does not often have to return to the beginning. So many would say that don't think of this as a linear timeline with stage one, dark night of the senses, stage two, dark night of the whatever, stage three. You know, like don't think of it that way. Think of it more as an upward spiral where you kind of circle around themes on this upward arc toward maturity and freedom and love. And uh, secondly, there is no one-size-fits-all approach to the spiritual journey. And I would balk, and so would they, at any attempt to make one. But as the saying goes, all journeys are different, all journeys are similar. I was with somebody who a few days ago, who I consider very mature, late 60s, amazing woman following Jesus longer than I've been alive, and she said with a whole lot of humility, man, I've just never been through an experience like what you were talking about. Wonderful. But I would say that most of us will go through something like this at some point in our apprenticeship to Jesus. Thomas Green, the Jesuit author of When the Well Runs Dry, which, by the way, is just another phenomenal resource on this, writes, all the great masters of prayer recognize that the time will come when our intellects, our imaginations, our feelings dry up and cease to be of help. It seems then that we've lost God, but the purpose of the whole experience is rather to reveal to us that God, the Lord we love, is not to be identified with any of these created means, meaning our intellects, imaginations, and our feelings are not God. They're messengers from God, but they're not God. That to learn learn that, we have to learn to distinguish him from every human mode by which we grasp him is not to lose him, as will surely appear to be the case at first, but truly to find him. All the great masters of prayer say something like this will likely happen to you at some point on the journey. That said, for those of you who identify with John and Teresa's paradigm, even just a little bit, just a few thoughts as we near the end. To those of you who identify with the dark night of the senses, I would just say keep following Jesus through the dark. 
Recognize this is where so many followers of Jesus get off the spiritual journey and become cultural Christians. The emotional high is gone. They no longer get the same kickback. So often people, rather than press through into the next stage, people just kind of settle for a level of compromise and cultural Christianity. You know, I've been here this summer. I will have been, um, you know, depending on when you count from, basically at our church for 16 years. And it's amazing. I was thinking about that actually just a few hours ago this evening, walking in. People that I remember who were, you know, 15 when we started or whatever, and now have like two children in tow or whatever. And it's beautiful. But what I also think about is all the people that are not here anymore. And it's surprising how many of them have not lost their faith. They just have somehow moved. And I remember when they were in the front row, like the proverbial or whatever, just all in for worship, full of passion for God. And then a lot of them hit the first dark night. A lot of them hit a season where there was no longer the same emotional high. Add to the mix, you know, a demanding job now and career and a marriage and a few children under five. And just at that point, people, they tap out. And I watch so many people who just kind of drift away. It's not some angry, like, progressive reaction against the church. It's not some crisis of faith, even. It's just they kind of drift from this passionate after Jesus to this kind of cultural Christian post-church space. And while it's not the majority, it is a good chunk of people. And my word to you is just don't let that become your autobiography. Press in. Keep following Jesus. Keep practicing the way of Jesus. Now, as we said last week, don't over-practice the way of Jesus or the spiritual disciplines. And recognize, and this is key, that the spiritual disciplines, and again, you're welcome to, this is not chapter and verse, you're welcome to push back on this, but I think that the spiritual disciplines have changed function. They no longer work the way they used to. They used to fill us with love and joy and peace from God's presence. We read our Bible. We came to church. We had opened up our mind to prayer, and we just instantly felt this kickback of God's nearness and love and power or whatever. Now, what more often than not they do is push up the psychological and spiritual bits of our heart that are in need of healing. They are less a window to God and more of a mirror to our own soul. They point to our need for God's saving work of grace for us to realize, oh, wow, I can't save myself. I need to be saved by Jesus here and here and here. Again, I just think that St. John's advice for those of you in this state is the best. I love this. I come back to this paragraph all the time. Quote, allow the soul to remain in peace and quietness. Contenting themselves, those in the dark night, with merely a peaceful and loving attentiveness toward God and in being without anxiety, without the ability and without even the desire to have experience of him or to perceive him. It doesn't mean like that you don't want God, but there's context there. He means just you come to acceptance. We would say surrender or just God, your will be done through all of this. For all of these yearnings disquiet and distract the soul from the peaceful, quiet, and sweet ease of contemplation, which is here, granted to it, meaning the work of grace in this stage. So just stay with Jesus in just peace and quiet and loving attentiveness toward God. To those of you in the dark night of the Spirit, again, just keep following Jesus in the dark. Press in. If the first dark night is where a lot of people get off and become cultural Christians, the second dark night is where a lot of people get off the spiritual journey altogether and just lose their faith. Now, I think very few in the room, if anyone is at this stage, if you are, I would just say, please get a spiritual director or a pastor to walk with you. At bare minimum, don't isolate. Let a community come around you in love. And if at all possible, get an older, wiser follower of Jesus, somebody who has been through some kind of spiritual aridity to just stand with you in solidarity and and offer kind of a little bit of a Sherpa as you go through this season with Jesus. And recognize that over time, prayer changes. It becomes less something we do and more something God does in us. Now, don't misread me. I'm not saying that as you mature, you give up intercessory prayer and you just sit around and like 
pray the breath prayer 24 hours a day. It's not what I'm saying at all. I think that is a, a misconception. But I do think there is a shift in our prayer life as we mature. We never mature past the basics of intercessory prayer and asking God and we partner with God. Prayer is moral responsibility. That's a whole other teaching. But there is a shift where we spend more and more time as we kind of have the basic of our life together before Jesus at this point. We just spend more and more time in the quiet before God. I love this from Thomas Green. As we grow, the Lord does more and more of the work and we do less and less. This means that more and more our prayer becomes the time we give the Lord to shape us, to transform us. Really, it's the art of learning to waste time gracefully. I love that. To be simply the clay in the hands of the potter. View your times of prayer, which if you're in the dark night, in particular of the Spirit, can be just excruciating at an emotional level. Just view it as the time that you give the Lord to shape you. To those of you in the, not in the dark night, which is most of you in the room, lucky you, um, just pl- first off, thank you for your patience the last two weeks. I know this is a lot to give it. I thought about not teaching about on this at all, um, or just to, but I just, I literally have never heard any teaching in a church context on this. I've read books about it. I've never, I'm sure it's out there, but I've never heard it in a church context. So I just thought, man, we need to say something because people feel so alone in this. So thank you for your patience, for the minority in the room. And what I would say to the majority of you who are not in a dark night is just have this as a category for future reference. The odds are that you will come to some kind of a season of dryness or darkness in the future. You don't need to fear that, nor do you need to pursue it. Just if and when it comes, remember this teaching and welcome God's work in your soul. For now, here's the one thing I would really ask of you. If you know anybody who is in a dark night, to your right, to your left, in our community, in your Bridgetown community, or just in the church at large, please, would you just stand with them? And when when stand with them, I don't mean like play pastor. Don't like try to fix them. Don't like up their spiritual discipline regimen. You know what I mean? Like you only fast once a week. Okay, let's take it to three to get you through the dark night or whatever. Um, like, I love the intentions, and you know me, I'm all for the spiritual disciplines, but that's not the problem, therefore it's not the solution. So don't try to fix them, and don't even try to pep talk them too much. If you would just stand with them in love, in compassion, as we all know that, that Latin comes from come or with passion, with suffering, if you would just suffer with them, and that you would believe for them that light is coming, that if you would live in the light and carry the torch to them in the darkness, if you would have faith and let them draw on your faith in a time of doubt or of a a struggle to trust in God, that's more than enough if you would just stand with those of us in this season. Finally, even if you're not in the dark night and you don't even buy the idea, you think it's 16th century mystic nonsense that's not in the Bible, fine, that's totally fine. I will be the first to say this is not black and white in the scripture at all. Here's what I think we can all agree on from St. John and Teresa's work in particular. For them, regardless of our stage or our personality or our gender or any of that stuff, there are three things that God is always trying to do in our soul. One, to set us free from our attachments and our anxieties. Attachments meaning all the things we think we need to live a happy life that we don't, but actually create not only anxiety, but cause us to cajole, manipulate, fight, bribe, lie, do all and sundry in an attempt to manipulate the people and circumstances of our life to fit the ego ideal of the life we think we need to be happy. And, and, and until we are set free from slavery to those attachments, or whatever you wanna call them, Keating called them our emotional programs of happiness, Calvinists call them the idols of the heart, whatever you want to call them, until we are set free. Not only are we not free to live a happy life, but secondly, the next thing that God is trying to do that we're not free to is to set us free to love, joy, and peace, the triumvirate at the heart of the kingdom reality. If you read Jesus' teachings in the Gospel of John or the epistles of Paul, love, joy, and peace form the nucleus right at the center. They are the three virtues, if you want. They're not emotions. 
They are the settled condition of the heart. They are the kinds of people that we become over a lifetime of apprenticeship to Jesus. People who are not just at an emotional level, who are by nature, have become the kind of people who are loving, who are joyful, and who are a non-anxious presence in the world. That the more we live into love, joy, and peace the more, under the rule of Jesus, the more we live into the kingdom reality that Jesus has for us. And Jesus is always trying to grow us and mature us and set us free to a greater degree of love and joy and peace. Because until we're in slavery to our attachments, we hurt people, we manipulate people, we wrestle with life, we do all sorts of damage, and we do not live and embody and pass on the love and joy and peace of the rule of God. And the final thing that Jesus, I think, is always trying to do in us is to increase our realization of our true identity in God's love as a son, as a daughter, as the beloved, and our place in God's presence. That all sense of disconnection or distance from God is an illusion that we are right now as we speak because of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit. We are in Christ, whether we feel it or not, whether we experience it or not, we are in Christ. And the entire journey with Jesus is a journey for what is true of us theologically to become true of us experientially, union with God. For them, this is the spiritual journey. However you cut it, whatever your path is, whatever your route is, whether the means to have this come about in your soul is the dark night or some other form of pain or suffering or just some other thing, whatever the means is, this is the end that Jesus is after in your soul. And I think that's just pretty hard to argue with if you've read the New Testament before. No matter the stage that you're in, here's my point. The question is at a very simple level, how will we cooperate with Jesus' loving intent for our life. On that note, our practice for the week, up, week ahead is all up at practicingtheway.org naming. It's a very short practice on the dark night. Basically, just two things. The idea is that you circle up as a community in the living room around the table and just create space for anybody who is in a dark night or in some kind of a desert with God just to open up and share in the safe place of loving community and not have people fix them or give them a pep talk or make them feel guilty or not spiritual enough, but just stand with them in solidarity and love and embody the love of Christ to them in the dark night. And then secondly, I put together a dark night of the soul step sheet a while back, just things you do when you have my Myers-Briggs number and you're in the dark night. Um, and it's, it's, it's about 5,000 words long, actually. Um, but it's just a collection of scriptures and quotes and reminders of what is true and what is false. And I would just update it every month or two and stick it in, either in the front of my Bible or my journal and just come back to it sometimes on a daily basis or a weekly basis, and just meditate on what is true because my feelings when, I was, when I'm in the dark night are not an accurate barometer of reality. And so I would just come back to meditate on what I know is true. So there's a link to a PDF in there. You're welcome to download that and read it if you want. You don't need to. Just do with it what you will. To end, let's stand together and pray. Thank you for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. We are in the middle of a year-long capital campaign to raise money to buy a building on the inner core, an old, beautiful, historic church building about a mile from where we meet right now. If you have been blessed at all by this podcast and would like to give to that over and above your regular giving to your church, wherever you call home, we would love to have you participate in that. Feel free to visit Bridgetown dot church slash give for more information. Thanks for listening.